You are listening to National Security Law Today. Welcome to National Security Law Today. We're your source for growth in the area of national security law during the nationwide protests, the COVID-19 pandemic quarantine, and all the time. As always, the lawyers on NSLT are here in their individual capacity and not on behalf of any agency or company. Our podcast today is a short news roundup of the many items related to national security law that have traversed our cable news screens and bombarded our social network feeds over the last week. And we want to just give you a quick summary of the legal implications of some of these news stories. So let's jump right in. First, former National Security Advisor John Bolton released a new book in which he made several statements that would appear to suggest that the president lacked an understanding of national security and international relationships and agreements. In an interview with ABC News' Martha Raddatz, John Bolton described Trump as a convenient idiot who was easily manipulated by Vladimir Putin and Kim Jong-un. The White House sued to block the book, saying it contained classified information. Bolton countered that the National Security Council had cleared his book for publication. Now, the case went south for the White House when Judge Royce Lambert said, in essence, that the controversy was moot because the book was already published and had been sent out. He did indicate that the White House had made out a prima facie case and that they would have otherwise won or at least been able to go forward on the merits. Now, soon afterwards, efforts to discredit Bolton emerged, not surprisingly. Uh, Some claimed that he was the architect of a plan to remove Nicolas Maduro, the president of Venezuela, and to install Juan Guaido. And uh, his opponents described that plan as ill-hatched as the Bay of Pigs. Bolton was also one of the architects of the Iraq War, which remains controversial in national security circles to this day. But here on NSLT, we talk about the law. So what laws are implicated? Well, several. First of all, there's an executive order governing governing classified information, how it can be used, when it can be disclosed. Uh, And um, that is the same executive order that was issued by President Obama several years ago, Executive Order 13526. And there are statutes that make the sharing of classified information a crime if you intend it to damage the U.S. or to benefit another country. Unclear yet whether there will be further consequences for Mr. Bolton. However, the president has indicated a desire to move forward with legal process um, to seize the proceeds from the book and to also uh, investigate whether or not he can be charged criminally. Thank you, Yvette. And another piece of recent news is the new uh, arrest warrant for President Trump. Yeah, it sounds bad when you hear it. It's from Iran, uh, and this arrest warrant uh, has now been presented to Interpol, which is an international uh, sort of fugitive organization, if you will, of member nations who can put in red notices, other notices, but basically uh, ask other member nations to arrest individuals when they enter their country. Uh, What's interesting about this is Iran is a member of Interpol. Um, We have a large Interpol presence here in the United States, as many of our listeners would be aware. Um, What you should also know, though, is that General Soleimani is a specially designated global terrorist, um, that there has been sort of global consensus on some of the things he's done. He's been the architect and founder of Iran's external terror operations. And um, he was the architect of the now designated terror group Hezbollah. 
Um, so this appears to be a gesture since Iran itself has failed to provide access to its citizens who have been indicted. So this may be uh, just really more of a gesture at this point. We'll have to see. Um, and if you want to hear more about uh, General Soleimani, please tune back into the podcast that we did that was exclusively about that subject uh, a few months back when he was assassinated. Yes, and we'll link that in the notes as well. Another piece of recent late breaking news is reporting from various media organizations that, the, that Russia has paid a bounty to the Taliban to kill U.S. service personnel serving in Afghanistan. Yvette, could you tell us more about that reporting? Sure, and um, that's a really good summary. Uh, there is uh, reporting from the uh, from the intelligence community that Russia paid members of the Taliban, whom the president has engaged with, to get a peace agreement in Afghanistan. Controversially, he invited the Taliban to uh, Camp David last year during 9/11. That caused quite a stir in national security circles. Um, in this situation, the payment uh, was from Russia to offer a bounty to kill. U.S. and British troops specifically. What made headlines uh, this week is the claim that the president knew about it and did nothing. And there are um, sort of blanket denials coming from the administration, but the intelligence community is insisting today that they did provide briefings to the president in writing. Um, And so this is playing out in real time. Uh, And so we will continue to follow the subject uh, as it develops. Okay, so um, I guess there were originally some interpretations, one that this version of events was uh, orchestrated to damage the president. Um, The problem uh, with any sort of denying of of this at this time is two things have emerged. One is GOP uh, members of Congress have indicated that they personally received the briefing um, and that there has now been some additional news that would suggest that a written briefing on this topic was provided as recently Uh, as February of 2020, but also as early as 2019 when um, uh, Grinnell, who is now the the DNI, was not yet positioned. Um, So one thing that we should note here is this looks super damaging and it's very easy to just draw a conclusion since the president has said that he's not going to participate in daily briefings, um, which at least the last four or five presidents have. but I think that there has also been a counterpoint by people very who are subject matter experts uh, on the relationship between Afghanistan and Russia. They have said that they believe that this is transactional. This bounty might have been transactional in nature, a one or two time thing, uh, which doesn't change the fact that we believe American lives may have been lost. But what they emphasize is that um, Russia is unlikely to establish uh, anything that would empower the Taliban. Um, so I'm not sure about that. And I don't, you know, we don't at this point have any information to know one way or another one. But it is also interesting um, that there have been claims that maybe the intelligence community itself did not highlight this news with the importance that it should have been given. In other words, they didn't tag this intelligence as meriting higher briefing was one of the criticisms um, that has been levied. But we you know, we don't know at this point, if you're a family member of a soldier who might have been killed uh, after a bounty was paid, I think you would think this intelligent was, intelligence was important enough to get the attention of the commander in chief. Um, but again, we don't, we don't know. I think the important takeaway at this exact moment is the importance of these daily intelligence briefings 
uh, and really understanding what is going on in the conflict zones uh, where we have a lot of good Americans serving. Let's assume for a minute that this actually happened and happened on some scale. Um, about what laws might be implicated by this? Um, well, this is really tricky uh, because the Taliban is designated a foreign terrorist organization. So payment would violate 18 U.S.C. 2339B, but Russia is a country and many Russians themselves are designated for various crimes. So it's, it's hard to say how we'd proceed. Would we prosecute Russia, um, the military unit that may have carried out uh, external killings. Um, this is certainly complicated by the fact that, you know, just like when the Mueller report came out and we designated, uh, you know, foreign entities for uh, hacking, would we ever even get jurisdiction over these people? This could get very tangled very quickly if we try to um, move forward with judicial remedies. Hey, we could, uh, we could certainly put it in an Interpol notice and it could sit in the soup with uh, the one by Iran. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I guess this is this. Uh, that's a really good point. This is kind of a commentary on the uh, limitations of, you know, the law when it comes to these tangled geopolitical um, issues. Um, I remember when I was taking international criminal law for the first time and kind of <laughs> realizing uh, that we, we don't often have a lot of remedies when it comes to the international space, just by nature of the way that um, the, the laws are set up. And we're gonna transition into that and into one of our items uh, in a couple of minutes. Yes, but before we get there, we wanted to touch briefly on something else that seemed to have squeaked past us all with the fog of COVID-19 continuing as a pandemic and recent civil unrest across the nation, which was the killing of an Al-Qaeda leader. Elisa, could you talk more about that? Yeah, that's right. There's public reporting, Nicole, that, um, you know, that really just escaped everybody's sort of massive notice. So Al-Qaeda affiliates have really faded from view as ISIS um, was really hijacking social media, really waging a media-based campaign um, to recruit people online and to terrorize uh, everyone globally. But uh, there's this guy whose name I will butcher, um, so forgive anybody of the same sort of ethnic background, but it's Abdel Malek Drukdel, who is a longtime leader of Al-Qaeda's North Africa arm. Uh, he was killed in Mali by public reporting, and he is a specially designated global terrorist by the U.S., um, but has also been designated by the United Nations for funding and participation in terrorism. Uh, so there was global consensus about his uh, evil ways, if you will. Um, he ordered attacks on things like United Nations buildings. He was an expert in explosives. Uh, and he had been a disciple of Zarqawi, um, who, uh, by public reporting, was really a shockingly rotten guy for uh, many years before he tried to found what later became ISIS, but was originally uh, had a different title. Um, he attacked several government buildings in Algeria. Um, and more recently, he was in Mali conducting acts of terrorism and murder and actively recruiting uh, personnel in Mali, which is, you know, not a rich nation and has a fairly uh, vulnerable population. Wow. Um, 
But to go back to what we were speaking about earlier, which is international criminal law, uh, we'd like to get to the latest executive order, which would designate the International Criminal Court under the International Economic Powers Act, IEPA. And this is a shocking development because, and because it's so complex, we're actually going to do an entire other podcast on it next week. So you can tune into that. But as a brief preview, uh, Yvette, you have some expertise in this area. So could you give us a little sneak peek of what we're going to talk about next week and tell us why the ICC was created? Sure. Um, and this, again, gets at uh, my point about the limitations of international law and why it can be so complex. Um, so the ICC, International Criminal Court, was created in 2002 by something called the Rome Statute, um, which was negotiated in 1998. Its charter covers uh, genocide, ethnic cleansing, war crimes, and crimes of aggression. And uh, essentially, it captures conduct that is um, on the on the international scale, so it's um it, you know and there there are a lot of um, uh, hoops that that uh, you know the international criminal court has to go through in order to attach jurisdiction. I'm sure we'll get into those um, details next week. Um, but just briefly, 123 countries or states party to the statute and have made themselves susceptible to ICC jurisdiction. But notably, the United States is not. Um, it, it, in the past, it's been supportive. Um, our relationship with the court has sort of ebbed and flowed over the years. But right now, we're at a really adversarial um, posture towards the court because of the um, prosecutor, Fatou Bensouda's intent to investigate alleged war crimes committed in Afghanistan by US forces during the global war on terror. So um, the court's prosecutor is asserting jurisdiction because Afghanistan is a state party uh, and uh, the US has vigorously resisted this. Um, however, in March, the ICC authorized the prosecutor to proceed with this investigation. So um, in response, uh, the president uh, recently signed an executive order that authorizes sanctions and visa restrictions against ICC personnel. Wow, and uh, you know, to, this is a shocking development. Um, and uh, we're going to really cover the landscape for people who are interested in this topic next week. It's extremely complex. Um, and we'll also share uh, news links with um, recent events and, in particular, some pardons that may have sort of heightened um, a response by others in the world to this. But um, it, just as a quick reminder, uh, this court has typically been used to deal with things like genocide and ethnic cleansing where rule of law has failed. Um, and it, it doesn't mean rule of law has conducted itself in a way that is not liked by certain other nations, but instead that it is, it's utterly absent. So this is gonna be really something to look at. We'll hyperlink the laws in the executive order that we discussed. Uh, so our more studious listeners can get ahead. And we're also going to add the charter of the ICC, which really is based on something called the Rome Statute. Um, and then you can get ahead if you want to hear the podcast next week and you know grow your knowledge. Uh, thank you for listening, everyone. Uh, and as we've discussed, we're going to continue to deliver content through these difficult times. So you grow your knowledge of the law, uh, become aware of legal opportunities, and all events that affect national security and national security law. Remember to hit the subscribe button on your app. Please be sure to send us comments and feedback because we want to hear from you. Find us on Twitter at ABA NATSEC or send us an email at nationalsecurity at americanbar.org. 
and the Standing Committee on Law and National Security will do whatever it can to keep you informed and give you context on these fast-moving legal developments so you don't have to search for it beyond your smartphone or laptop screen. You're not looking at just a Twitter bite without having the underpinning knowledge. Uh, we'll try to give you the full picture and it'll be very easy to reach right from your phone. You've heard it before, and we'll say it again. Don't forget the lawyers hosting this podcast are here in their individual capacity, not on behalf of any agency or firm. All right, we'll be back next week with more content, especially on the ICC issue and the Rome statute. Be well, everyone, and be safe. We're all in this together, even though we have to be apart. And even though we all have very different views. So let's come together through education, knowledge, and growth. The views expressed on national security law today have not been approved by the House of Delegates or the Board of Governors of the American Bar Association and accordingly should not be construed as representing ABA policy.